Uh, Richmond's story uh, is going to be a little bit different from uh, Clayton's ver- uh, version of church planting and also ours later on. But Richmond's story began in 1894 uh, as a church plant in a lounge room. I hope you can see that up there. It's one of my favourite pieces of history from this church building. Uh, within a year, the church had already built the first part of the building here um, and it established itself as a, as a church. Uh, 120 years next year. Um, and over the next few decades, a steady group of additions were made. Each part of the building is another addition, uh, which makes it hard to renovate because every wall is external. Uh, but uh, up to this part of the building, which is actually the newest uh, large structure, and that was built in 1930. So you are sitting in the newest part of this building, uh, and it's 1930. This was dedicated. Uh, since then, Richmond has had a rocky history, uh, very often needing to share pastors. One of our ladies wrote a 100-year history for the centenary, uh, she's been here for a fair chunk of that, so some of it was from her experience, uh, and the rest from her parents, uh, who were around from very early days. Uh, often, this, often this church needed to share pastors with other small Baptist churches around the place, um, and like many other churches in Australia, it had its heyday in the 60s, cramming 200 kids into the hall behind us uh, for its Sunday school, like so many churches uh, around the country. Uh, the legacy of that time still continues today because I'm surprised by how often I'll meet someone in the community who either came here for Sunday school or uh, whose parents came here when they were, when they were kids, which is really amazing. Uh, but since the 70s, um, maybe into the 80s a little bit, Richmond has slowly but steadily declined in number, uh, kind of mirroring the, the stats that suggest all of that, um, and kind of dwindled to become a church of about 15 regulars reaching out to about half a dozen migrants uh, by the beginning of 2011 when I started having real-time experience of the history of this place. Um, A bit more recent history, Sarah and I moved back, uh, to give you an idea of um, myself, Sarah, my wife, and I moved back from Sydney uh, to Adelaide with the view of planting, of of jumping into a suburb somewhere, uh, beginning in a lounge room and uh, sharing the gospel with people and seeing what would happen. We wanted to start in a place where nobody else would go, where there wasn't much happening, where there wasn't much gospel activity, um, and go from there. Uh, and when we came back and I started at college, we, uh, we started working on gathering a core team and identifying a location and strategy and worked as a youth pastor, studied at college, and started our family as well, which was crazy times. And we started building a momentum towards a plant. What we did as part of that process was Uh, I got a map of Adelaide and started highlighting on the map uh, churches in Adelaide that are gospel-centred, Bible-based and missionally active. Uh, It was quite a subjective uh, view. It was just me and me asking around what people thought of those churches. Uh, So very subjective, obviously, and uh, who am I to judge? But it was a good exercise. Uh, Found a big hole in the west, particularly the inner west of Adelaide, where there wasn't much um, activity uh, in, in those three kind of areas um, out here. So we started looking at the West, we started our demographic studies and things like that, um, not with a whole team like Clayton had, but mostly just me and the ABS website, uh, looking at all sorts of numbers. But how did we end up here? Why, why Richmond? When, when that was our plan, um, through a couple of what we call God incidences, Richmond came up on our radar uh, the first time I heard about Richmond, I said, no, it's denominational, it's an old church, there is way too much baggage, I'm not going anywhere near that. Um, I actually prayed a very dangerous prayer and said, God, if uh, you want us to have anything to do with this place, 
you are going to have to do some work because I am not going anywhere near it on my own. Six months later, through a um, completely different person, completely outside of circles that I normally mix in, uh, talking to them about plans to plant in the west of Adelaide, have you heard about this church called Richmond Baptist? Um, they're uh, in a position where they're actually starting a search for a young pastor, someone to come in and uh, transform uh, where they are and what they're doing. Uh, so that's kind of how we ended up here. We, it wasn't an easy decision. We spent six months uh, negotiating with the church. We had a moderator from the Baptist denomination involved, and we really wanted to make it clear to them what I was on about and what we were on about and the intentions. We weren't just coming in to continue what had been going on for a long time. We weren't coming to uh, uh, necessarily just meet the needs of the existing people. Um, the moderator used uh, some interesting terms about me. I'm not sure if they're true, but he... Uh, made sure they understood that what you're getting with Elliot is a tiger. You're going to have to just grab on and hang on. And he, he used that descriptive language. I'm not sure that's true. But he used that descriptive language to try and get them to understand that they're not going to be able to get a pastor in, that they might be able to just hold the reins and, and do their own thing, that this was something different to that. And so they really wanted to make that clear. Uh, so they knew what they were getting into. We had talked about my plans, my hopes, my dreams uh, for the gospel um, in this area. Uh, and they are on board. Uh, interestingly, Sarah and I should have known that we would end up in a um, replant situation because we'd actually been involved in one before. Uh, so we'd actually had experience in Sydney. We moved from Adelaide to Sydney to be on the core team of a replant over there. We didn't lead that one. Um, for those of you in Sydney, it's um, in Cogra with Steve Chong at Kirk Place. We're involved there um, as part of that uh, replant there. And so we've had experience on a core team seeing this happen. Now, not as uh, high level as leading it, but certainly involved at, and seeing the pros and cons and some of the things that were going on. So this is actually the second replant I've been involved in, which is uh, pretty amazing. Now, one of the things I've admired was the courage of the church faithful to take an inexperienced uh, 27-year-old at that stage, pastor on, who, who was could come across as a little bit reckless and a bit young and uh, with a whole lot of dreams and ideas about how to, um, how to do things. Um, so I, I admire and I'm thankful for the courage of the church faithful here who were able to take that step because that's a significant step of faith, I think. Um, so I just want to point that out. And so in January 2011, we came to Richmond with four other couples. Uh, all the other couples were aged under 25. So a young, inexperienced team, uh, very much coming into a uh, an older congregation that had been doing some of the same things for at least three decades. Some things hadn't changed around the place. So an interesting dynamic. Now, there's heaps to say about what we've been up to the last two and a half years, so I'm going to try and focus on just a couple of areas. One of the, the hats I've had to wear uh, coming into a, a church like this is cross-cultural ministry. Uh, it, it's, it's been an interesting learning curve. Uh, when you're a young pastor with mostly youth experience, uh, coming in and dealing with people, some of them who are more than 45 years older than you, uh, it really is a cross-cultural work. Uh, and one of the first things we had to do was uh, help uh, the current group, the group that were already here, the existing group, uh, change a mindset from uh, maintenance to mission. Now, they'd never set out to be a, have a mindset of maintenance. These are people who love Jesus, who love the word. They want to see the gospel spread. Uh, but as the numbers have dwindled over the years, 
it takes all of their energy just to keep things going. And so they end up in maintenance mode, even if that's not their intention. Um, but when you do that for a long time, that starts to become your default. That starts to become how you think about things and how it's survival, really. Um, and so we've had to work hard to uh, help them shift from that mindset of just surviving to, hang on, we can actually push into the community and spread the gospel. Um, and that, that takes some time when you've been doing something like that for 30 years. Uh, one thing that uh, we've had to do as part of that cross-cultural work is think hard about the culture of our church. What do we, what do we want this church to look like? And one of the uh, things that has been so helpful about doing this sort of church plant is that rather than starting as a young adult church, and we know lots of church plants that start and, and end up with a demographic that's you know plus or minus 10 years from the age of the pastor, and if it's a younger church planter, it's a very much a young church, we've instantly got people ranging from 18 to, uh, in our case, 71, or in this case, this is Alice. She's 100, and she's our longest standing member. She can't actually come anymore. She's blind, but she prays for us every day, um, and she lives just down the road in one of the, the homes down the road. Uh, and very much still a part of our community as much as she can be, uh, and a couple of our ladies meeting her a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's been one of the, the great things. But to as a, as a church planner, you want to you want to have some freedom. You want to have some uh, opportunity to try new things, to do different things. And coming into a situation where you're dealing with multi generations, you can't just default to singing songs that. 20-something-year-olds like to sing or doing things in a particular style that younger folk want to, want to do. You have to think much more carefully and much more slowly about how you do your services, how you do your ministries, how you're relating to people, how you're mixing people. Uh, one of the uh, temptations early on was actually to establish a second service. So we could have an early traditional service for the existing congregation and establish a second, younger, cooler, hipper service that would attract more people and grow much more uh, quickly. Um, but we resisted that temptation for the, um, even though it meant it was a longer, slower, harder process over time. But what it's meant is that we now have a very rich service experience that when people come in, uh, they value that there's multi, multiple generations. And we find there's a whole lot of young adults out there who, as much as they're attracted to a young church style, actually miss in those environments older generations and so even though we might not be the coolest service going around with the the youngest and latest music uh, although our team do a great job um, of, of, of a lot of that we've got a value of having grandparents here who have been there done that who can speak into their lives and uh, that's been a great a great positive of of this style of church plant um, one of the things about our culture that we've really encouraged um, is uh, what we call gospel groups. And you might think, why would you call them gospel groups? There's much better names to call your small groups. Uh, one of the reasons we've gone with gospel groups is because we want it very clear what our groups are on about. Uh, that is what we do groups for. It's what we do church for. Uh, what, uh, one of the things I want to talk about gospel groups for is because that's a significant part of our culture, our focus, the way we want to uh, empower people to not be dependent on um, a pastor or um, a, a, a church leadership team, but to be able to independently, really, in gospel groups, do life, growth, and action things. Um, and so live a Christian life, care for one another, uh, share the gospel, meet the needs of needy people in the community, do justice together. Um, 
um, and, and uh, grow together, study the word together. Um, so this is not some new crazy idea, but for us it's really important um, that our groups are spending uh, about a quarter of their time doing stuff outside of themselves in their community, um, doing some action and things like that. And we, we don't say that you have to do once a month, uh, but what our group uh, does, the one that we have in our home, is we might do six or eight weeks of Bible study, uh, and then we'll do two or three weeks in a row of finding neighbours, friends, people that we can actually get out and, and do things for. Uh, we try and run with the rhythms of life, and then we throw in a whole bunch of um, just celebrating with each other, uh, mourning with each other, spending time doing things like that. That's, for us and our culture, that's something that we really want to emphasise uh, because what I've uh, found and what um, might be your experience too, I'm not sure, um, is that when we do things corporately a lot of the time, we're actually uh, not encouraging, not empowering people to be Christians in the world that they live in because they're so reliant on the church providing that program or a someone who's a trained evangelist or speaker or something like that actually doing that work uh, rather than understanding that, yeah, well, there's a place for, for great preachers and great evangelists and they have their gift and we need them, uh, but actually we're all called to share the gospel. We're all called to talk to our friends. Um, on the other end of the scale, I could get up and preach every week, go and, go and talk to your workmate about Jesus, uh, but that's really scary when you're on your own and you think you're on your own. But if you're in a group, a small group together, and you can come up with a way with your small group on how to reach your workmate, it's much less scary. So we're really focusing people how to uh, do that in a, in a group environment. Um, not to say that people don't do it individually either. Um, but for us, that's been a key focus um, uh, culturally throughout the last two and a half years. And we've had to start our groups and stop them a couple of times or restart them at the beginning of a new year as we've had new people uh, just reinforce that culture um, and things like that. The other reason gospel groups have been so important to us has been integration. Uh, we've worked hard to spread out the older crew, uh, that the existing group that were here, amongst our gospel groups because the default, again, would be for that group to cling together and our younger groups to, to form gospel groups on their own and limited interaction, limited integration. Uh, we're really keen to keep them together and uh, so far that's been uh, almost entirely a positive experience. Because there's a whole lot of been there, done that uh, in, the, in the older group. They've had experience, they have wisdom, they can speak into our younger guys' lives, particularly with life issues, things that they face, um, challenges that they face. Um, and it's also life-giving for the older generation. Because instead of being expected to be spectators and left out of all of the action, they're now involved in the action. And so they're included in that, and that's really life-giving. So we have... Um, uh, 71-year-old uh, who comes out to the footy with us. Um, she uh, came out, just trying to remember where we went, went to someone's house for a, for a party. Uh, everyone else was there but was between 20 and 35, and she was there as well. And it's a 71-year-old hanging out with this group of people. It's so life-giving, so encouraging, and she loves it. Uh, now, I know not every 70-something-year-old is capable of doing that, uh, but to me that's just a, an example of... Uh, Working hard to be, I think, what Christian family is meant to be, um, where we're inclusive and, and can be involved and things like that. Uh, one thing that might be obvious to you, if you've had a look around or even as you came in uh, or even as you were looking for a sign, uh, is that we are undergoing plenty of renovations uh, here. Just watch your step around the place. There's still plenty of rubbish uh, all over the place. But uh, the renovations have, are really symbolic of what we've been doing with people. Here, actually, 
there's a lot of people here who have been established and, and have some traditions. Uh, the building's been here a long time and has its own kind of traditions, you know, if, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, the renovations um, were, were strategic as well uh, in that we had to give, in the early days, we had to give our younger folk, our young adults, some sense of ownership because this really was the home ground for a group of people and we had this new group of people coming in. Uh, we really needed to find a, a way to give them some sense of ownership and, and involvement uh, and to even the playing field, so to speak. Uh, so what we did was we identified the least owned space in the building, uh, which was actually this space that we're sitting in. It was the furthest away from the worship space, which is often the most <coughs> precious and sacred space in a traditional uh, environment. Um, and so we identified this, uh, proposed that we turn it into a cafe space uh, to enlarge our too smaller cafe space at that stage. Um, and we renovated uh, this space, and there's some of the photos from that uh, time up there. That was two years ago now um, we did that. Uh, and and what, what was great about that was that our 20-somethings were able to show the older generation that contrary to popular belief, a generation Y could actually work hard, that they could come in under budget, um, and that they could establish an, a helpful and useful area used for all ages. So there was that side effect as well, because there was some suspicion early on that uh, there was some Gen Ys asking for some money to be able to create themselves a space. Um, and they worked hard, they volunteered lots, gave lots to it, uh, and it, it kind of broke down some of those stereotypes and built trust. Uh, it showed that we were willing to give and commit to and, and, and work in an environment that had been owned for so long by this older generation. Uh, it also gave the young adults a sense of ownership in the space and in the place, uh, and a place that they could contribute, um, which was really important for integration and becoming a new family um, together. The renovations continue to be symbolic of where we're at, I think. Uh, we're messy. We've got a bunch of different people from all over the place. Um, on the spiritual kind of time timeline, um, uh, there's things that happen fast, and then there's other times where it's just a slow grind, and just things don't happen. And so the renovations for me have been really, really powerful symbol of uh, what we're doing with the people, uh, not just the building. There has been the frustrations at times that the the building has distracted a little from what we really want to do, but at the same time, that's the building has been a unifying. Uh, important unifying factor for all of us as we build our family home together, if that makes sense. So it's been really helpful uh, for that sort of thing. Uh, it, it's also uh, kind of uh, symbolic in the sense that r discipleship, which is what we're on about uh, most, of the, most of the time, hopefully that's what we're on about all the time, um, is renovation of the heart. And so the bit renovating this place is actually symbolic of what God is doing in, in all of us. Uh, all right, next hat. Uh, so I've had to wear a hat as a cross-cultural worker and, a, and as a project manager for renovations at times. Uh, one of the things I've had to do as well, and this is what I, I guess I love doing and what we're on about and hopefully as church planners what we're all trying to get into, and that's building community connections. Um, so I just want to describe a couple of connections uh, that we've been able to make. Um, not far away, there's a Cowandilla Children's Centre. Uh, it's a couple of suburbs over. Uh, we've been able to make connections with the people who run that place. It's, it's a collaboration between um, Child and Youth Health and um, a few other family service departments. They have allowed us to network with them, and we actually have a couple of people who volunteer in some of their programs, and that's been a, a great place for us to actually 
operate in a community space and build relationships with people uh, without the fearful barrier of a church door or any sort of church program. We're operating in a uh, friendly environment um, and connecting a lot with um, vulnerable families as well in that space. The other group that we've connected with well, and this is, uh, I think, going to be key into the future, is uh, God has caused council to show us a lot of favour in that uh, youth representatives from council uh, are now coming to us and saying, hey, we've heard you've got this little cafe space running and we know that you're enlarging it. Um, this won't be the cafe next time you come. Um, uh, we would love to go and get Year 9 and 10 students from Adelaide High School, which is not far away, and bring them to your space and give them some hospitality training and you can provide the mentors, uh, but we'll bring them to you. We'll also do all the regulatory work. So on our time, we'll make sure that you're up to speed with food safety and oh and everything. So we'll bring in the resources for all that to happen. Uh, so we had a health inspector here last week. A little bit scary. Most churches kind of operate under the radar on that sort of thing. Found out a lot of things that churches do illegal, so watch out. Um, but she was great. Because council were bringing her in, it wasn't any sort of, you know, we're trying to do this. They were encouraging her to come in and have a look. And we're now food notified like food safety notified, which means we can sell food, so all the food you have today is legal. Um, Fantastic. Um, But things like that is is great that somebody else is doing that work. We're not actually having to do that work. Uh, Other things they're doing on their time, they're researching programs around the country, uh, all around the country, on their time that are similar to what we're trying to do so that we can learn from other models. So I'm not having to spend my time trying to find out what other people in other cities are doing that are similar models. They're doing all of that analysing it and bringing back what's useful for us. And that's, I mean, we're excited about working with them because um, uh, they're bringing youth into our space. We're going to provide the mentors uh, and hopefully we can build gospel relationships out of the relationships rather than running just a specific church-based program. It also means we're not having to provide a lot of the resources, a lot of the legwork. Uh, They're even going to provide funding for training on all sorts of areas for our volunteers, which is a fantastic connection and I'm really looking forward to what that Uh, what will happen there. Um, Also, somehow I landed on a um, council board creating a family-friendly council. I have zero uh, external experience on that sort of thing. My qualifications and degrees have nothing to do with that. Somehow landed on a board with the council where I met with all these qualified people uh, and we discussed how to make West Torrens Council a family-friendly area. It's great to have influence on something like that. We're speaking into the community, meeting a whole lot of people who are involved in vulnerable families' lives, uh, and they're interested in us filling some of the gaps that some of the bigger organisations can't meet because they're too big to meet every little kind of families. But we're small. We can jump in and meet individual family needs and uh, things like that. So some great connections. But the connection that uh, God has surprised us most with, uh, and most of all me because I'm Kiwi, uh, grew up playing rugby and then soccer when mum stopped signing consent forms for rugby. Um, zero interest in football, don't have an AFL team, anything like that. Uh, I'm, I'm chaplain at West Adelaide Football Club, which is two minutes away. Started that at the beginning of last year. They rang us, said we would love you to be on our player welfare team after a quick chat. Uh, and now very firmly established in that, cult, in that environment, which has been fantastic on a whole lot of levels. Um, one of the very important parts of, of what that's meant for us is that I'm able to share a whole lot of stories with our family about what God is doing through me in that, in that environment. So it's not just about them spectating, 
uh, what I'm doing, you know, the professionals out there doing evangelism. It's about me being able to share stories with our family as an encouragement and as a lesson um, and, and just being able to spur them on um, with what God is able to do uh, in that environment. We've built great relationships with staff and players, um, the board, other supporters, uh, prayed with support staff. Um, they let us run their leadership development camp. So on Australia Day long weekend this year, I actually took 12 of the players away, took them hiking, woke them up in the middle of the night, that sort of thing, and then taught them on leadership, um, character, um, life skills, things like that, because a lot of these football players only know about football because they all dream they're going to make it and they don't care about anything else. So we're really keen to invest in them. Um, for the rest of their lives. Um, the football club's involved in our community, so uh, the captain's wife comes to our mum's group here. Uh, so the footballers are coming to a shooting afternoon in a couple of weeks with us. Um, we run a coffee and dessert night here on the last Friday of every month, and a bunch of the staff and different players have come from time to time. Um, some great things that God is doing. I'm reading the Bible with one of the players, um, and amazingly too, it's been a great uh, spur for people who are uh, interested in connecting um, with the football community. And we've now got an under-18s chaplain as well. So one of our 20-year-olds has come in from, from our community, and he's now our um, under... Actually, I think he's just turned 21. Uh, he's now under-18s chaplain um, over at the club. Uh, it's just a great, um, very exciting connection. Uh, one of the highlights from that connection um, is that they got involved in our renovations, the head coach wanted them to do a, um, a community project. Now, next year, we'll hope to do a project for someone else, and we'll do it together. Uh, but this year, um, to build a relationship with the club, we allowed them to come and do a uh, project with us. The head coach and I went around and door-knocked a bunch of community uh, businesses, and we were actually donated about $30,000 worth of building supplies as part of that. It was an amazing time of God causing um, the world to show us favour I've, I've never had an experience where anyone's wanted to give the church anything. If you go somewhere and you're like, hey, I'm the pastor from the church, give us stuff, they're like, yeah, like that's going to happen um, unless, you know, you guilt them or something. Um, <laughs> but with the coach there, we were able to say, this is a community project, this is what we're doing, this is what the, the football club are doing. Um, and we were given um, some Adelaide Oval turf, a bunch of pavers, like you name it, we've been given a whole lot of stuff. We now have a contact who gives us free paint whenever we want it. Um, just all these things where God has caused people to show us favour, um, which is amazing and something we praise God for. Uh, what they also did was on one weekend in pre-season this year, I'm about to show a video, uh, was they sent out their whole senior squad um, and did a renovation here. I just want to show a video. All right, you might be thinking, why would I show that? What's that got to do with church planning? For, for me, that's got everything to do with church planning because it's a community connection where uh, instantly I have permission to be a, a Christian in a non-Christian environment. I can be loud and proud about my faith. Instantly, we've got 60 guys that we're praying with, connecting with in various ways, um, speaking to in various ways. Uh, plus the extended community. So there's a board, there's a few thousand supporters, all sorts of people that we're getting exposure to and that who are interested now in who we are. They've all heard about who we are. Um, it's been a fantastic connection. Uh, it's also been a great personal exercise. Uh, this sort of church plant uh, setup means that instantly you have pastoral things to deal with. And if you're thinking, great, I'm going to be a church planter because then I don't have to deal with all these pastoral things, because I'll be going in with a group of switched-on people who get what we're on about, and I don't have to deal with what's going on. This style of church plant means that straight away 
you're doing pastoral visitations because there's pastoral things happening. And, and so your time can easily be swamped. And so to have this sort of uh, thing happening in my time means that I'm staying switched on. My eyes are staying uh, not just in here, they're up and out. Um, and that's been really helpful both personally but also, I think, uh, for our community. Um, a few things, I'll just quickly go through these and then we can have some Q&A. Um, is it worth it? Why would you even do this sort of church plant? Why wouldn't you just go out on your own and start your own? Uh, why wouldn't you do the mother-daughter thing? Um, I think the number one reason why it's worth it is because that there, there are countless numbers of churches like this uh, in, in Australia uh, who have people in them who love the Lord. And it might not look like they're being active or doing anything missionally or anything like that. And you might think, man, they, all those churches just need to shut down. But there's still people who are God's children who have been praying for a number of years for God to act um, and who have maybe had their time where they are involved in gospel work. And we need to value that. And as a church planner, it's actually really easy to undervalue all of that. Uh, certainly one of the lessons I've learned. A few other reasons why it's fantastic, why it's fantastic to do this style of church plant. Instant community standing. Uh, Clayton mentioned the badge of Trinity. In our case, straight away, we've got 100 plus years of history in this community. People know about who we are. When I go and talk to people, they, again, like Clayton said, you're not just some crazy that's coming into the area. You're, you're in an, from an established church and you can and build on those connections. Uh, you get a building. Uh, you don't have to carry chairs. It's a great thing. <laughs> Anyone who's done a church plant uh, or had to move chairs and sound gear and everything, you know that that's a very positive then you also get other assets which can resource um, gospel work. Uh, you get people. I mentioned them in terms of their value, but you get their faithfulness, their prayerfulness. Uh, God wants to answer his people's prayers. There have been people praying in this place faithfully for decades that God will work. Uh, God is looking for people who are praying uh, for his kingdom to come. Um, and there's a group of people here. You get a richer demographic, depending on the church that you're going into, of course. Uh, but in our case, you know, a richer demographic, a much wider, richer spread uh, of age groups. Um, and in our case, as a denominational church, we get the de denominational resources as well. So the, the, um, uh, the, the strengths that Clayton mentioned in the Trinity Network, we've got access to the Baptist resources on insurance and administration and things like that, um, which when you're small, when you're low resource, can count for a lot. Um, don't underestimate them. Um, some of the challenges... Uh, some people have struggled with change. Uh, you need to have a good idea about change management coming in. Uh, uh, some of our people have struggled with change. Some of them struggled with loss of control. They'd been used to operating in a way that everything came across their desk, so to speak, uh, for every decision. And as we grew um, and as we brought in new people, we had to spread the ownership um, and, and uh, had to happen based on gifting and also numbers of people here. Uh, and some people really struggled with that. Um, and we had to pastorally work slowly and carefully with, with a number of people. Um, uh, leadership, you have to kind of work with people that were there before. You've got a core team coming in. You've got existing leadership. You're trying to mould them together. You've got to come up with a way of how you're going to create a new leadership um, without kind of putting everybody offside, and that can be a struggle. So it's worth thinking about that. Uh, one of the lessons I had, we came in with a church planting program. You know, I read uh, all the books that say, you know, work out your strategies and all your processes and your timings and who you're going to bring and everything. Had all of that pretty well ready to go as we were looking into the suburbs. More, a little bit more detailed work to do. Uh, came here and pretty much threw it all out within a couple of months. 
Uh, because you have to work at a much slower place because we realised that before we could do a whole lot of these things, we need to work really hard on integration, we had to work hard on discipleship, on culture, uh, all of those things that if you're just starting with an army, you can start on the ground running. You can just hit it and go for it. Uh, but when you're coming into a situation like this, it's a little bit harder, a little bit slower. And we're still, even two and a half years in, still haven't done a couple of the things that I would love to have done day one uh, as a fresh church plant. Um, and so that's one of the challenges. Uh, obviously, the cross-cultural work, integrating two generations, some who can't live without an iPhone and some who have no idea what an iPhone is. Um, that's a challenge. Uh, and tradition. Uh, Challenging the why has been really important for us. Uh, why we do things. There's a lot of defaults that people do. Now, tradition's not a bad thing in itself. Most things didn't start out just to become an annoying tradition that you have to deal with in the future. Uh, but working hard to challenge um, why things happen and, and, uh, and how to maybe think differently about that. Interestingly, I think that applies to young people just as much as uh, older, though, so... Uh, a few key factors that have made um, this work, I think. Um, uh, obviously, uh, I don't need to talk too much about God's work and, and his spirit's work and, um, and what he has done. But uh, one of the things that's made it work is Baptist autonomy. So the Baptist denominational structure means that I don't need to fight upwards in a denomination. So it's worth thinking about if you're looking at an existing church, the setup of the particular denomination that that church is involved in. Um, I don't know enough about other denominations, but I do believe it can become a hassle. So Al's smiling, so maybe talk to him about that. He's been a bishop, so maybe it was him everyone was fighting. Um, uh, one of the other key factors that has made this work, I think, is Richmond's messy history. So you read their history, and it's not actually an enjoyable history to read. There's some sad bits, there's some challenging bits, there's, there's ups and downs, there's all sorts of challenges. Um, uh, Theologically, the church has had all sorts of different pastors, uh, which means the theological roots are some sh somewhat shallow or have been in the past. Uh, this has actually been a factor that has made this work because if you go into a church that has a consistent, long-standing history that, where they've been theological you know, or doctrinally, dogmatically very sure of themselves, traditionally very sure of themselves, those roots, roots go very deep. And to try and change any of that, to try and move on any of that, uh, can be impossible on some things but in a church where those traditional roots don't run as deep on most things and even the theological roots don't run as deep when you come in and open the word with people they're willing to listen and they're willing to go to the word with you and not just say hey no this is the way we've been doing it uh, and so that's actually been a a, a positive thing um, an older associate um, they they had a senior pastor part-time um, when I came in, uh, his role was to keep them going for a time and then transition with the young guy. They, weren't, uh, they were willing to take a risk with the young guy, but not without an older guy there. Uh, in our case, we had a 63-year-old uh, man from a CRC background, so a more Pentecostal background, but that actually meant he's fairly lively, um, as Pentecostal older pastors tend to be, um, stereotyping some older Baptist pastors, even on a recording. Um, uh, but do you know what I mean? It meant he was interested in the gospel and seeing God work and just very passionate about life uh, and um, just very excitable. And we actually consider each other brothers now um, and have had a great time together. Um, he said on Sunday, he's actually come off payroll just last week, um, uh, that we haven't had a, a hard word to each other ever in two and a half years, which is pretty amazing for 40 years difference. 
um, and some different ways of thinking about things. But we very quickly worked out our roles. Uh, he's very much an encourager and a supporter, uh, recognised my giftings in preaching and leadership and things like that, and it just made sense um, for that to happen. And the last thing I want to say, the other reason this has worked, is that because we work hard to provide the best coffee um, in Adelaide on a Sunday. Um, and I want to just go for Q&A now. So. Damien. No, eight couples came with us. Um, one of them uh, I had been connecting with since he was in year eight, so we had a strong relationship, and he, him and his wife were keen to come. Um, and then the other couples were... They were the only couple to commit pre-us starting. Um, they said, we'll go with you any, anywhere, actually. That was before even Richmond was confirmed. Um, I was thinking Iraq, and they said, no, no. Um, uh, the other three couples said, oh, we'll come along on your first Sunday to support you and haven't left. So, yeah. And they, um, were you looking and praying? Did you have something in mind? You talked about strategy that you threw out. Yeah. Um, were you praying for and looking for particular skill sets like baristas? <laughs> yeah. Um, when, when we were looking at fresh plant, yes, very much so. I would have recruited even harder. When we started to realise that this door was opening and that we were going to end up here... I actually slowed down the recruitment process a lot because one of the things that I'd seen in our church replant experience in Sydney uh, was the resistance of the existing congregation if it came in too hard and fast because it feels like a takeover. And so we slowed down the, the recruitment, we slowed down the team building, which has been to our detriment at some levels because we haven't had the calibre of leadership uh, that we needed. Uh, and so I don't know what the right answer is there in the balance between coming in with the right people and making sure it's not a takeover. Um, yeah. So the, so the eight couples, um, were they with you originally or did, was that slow process over 12 months? Or? Um, that, they were people I worked with in my previous role and just interested in what we were talking about and what we were doing. Uh, basically, half our small group came with us from, from where we were. Yeah, from our one church, actually. They were all in our small group at our previous church. So. And my last question is, um, how were you supported as a pastor when they had 15 people in the congregation? Good question. Um, one of the other benefits is assets. So the church has actually sold its manse a couple of years before I came. Um, and So we live in a tent. Um, and they've used that money to pay our deficit budget that we've had for the last three years. Yeah. Yes. Um, so my time frame was already, but that hasn't happened. We've had to slow down that. Um, I'm, we're actually thinking about starting a second service uh, late this year um, and looking to start an off-site service next year is the plan. Um, Dave Alvarez is our student minister, and we're looking at establishing him either to take over more responsibility here um, so that it free me up to go and invest in a new congregation or uh, maybe even to send Dave out on his own as he develops and, and learns and, yeah. Yeah? you want to say anything that you've learned about leading people who are older? 
like even when you read the pastorals, it like Paul says to Timothy, you know, it's not easy, you know, that's um, yeah. you know, so any thoughts about leading old guys? <laughs> um I hadn't thought of that for today. Um leading older people. Valuing something of bef- that came before is really key. It doesn't mean you need to value everything, uh, but just finding something that you can value while at the same time you're... It's, it's a bit like a magic trick. You kind of distract them over here and, and do the change. Over. No, no, it's not like that at all. But it's, it's valu- valuing, valuing something that's important to them, uh, but not obviously um, going to be detrimental to the changes that you need to do. So saying, uh, for us, the renovation process has been we won't touch the chapel space until the rest of the building is renovated so that the older folk have something to hang on to so that the change isn't all happening at once Um, so just valuing some of the things that are really important to them so even when we move into the new hall we're going to move into this hall out here we're going to keep four of the pews just for the back row Uh, just as something to hang on to something to to for them to value Um, because one of the challenges initially was every idea I had and I had to learn how to change my language even though it might be better for now, it was taken as a criticism of everything that had been done before, which was not our intention. It was just, hey, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to get on with. Nothing to do with what's come before, really. But it was taken as a, oh, that means you're saying everything we've done is is bad. So I had to learn very much to change the way I I spoke and value something and speak about how valuable it is. Um, For us at the moment, it's valuing the investment of the previous generation in assets so that as we're spending some of their money on capital renovations, we're, we're valuing that that has been the work of God and the faithful people before we came along. And so, yeah, just trying to, yeah, that's what I've learned. Uh, what's the general feel uh, amongst the place now, particularly amongst people who have been there for a long time? Um, uh, I would say overall, everyone's on board with what God is doing. They're excited by um, what's happening um, we're over two-thirds, 20-somethings now, so it's a very different demographic to what it was before. Um, there's still one or two people who have struggled since very early on uh, with the, the, the change and all the changes, and they're still around um, but struggling uh, still to find their place, and we're trying to, we're trying to find them a place, uh, but the fact is that, that we just can't have things that the way they were, and so we're just working with them on, on what that looks like into the future and um, yeah, but overall, people are on board. Um, people love what we're doing. I, I feel like I've got the full support of our leadership group and, and majority of the church, and um, yeah, particularly with the directions that we're heading in. So, yeah. Can I just ask the process of uh, working out and negotiating how you would, you would come in? Mm-hmm. Uh, putting their money where their mouth was was a big one, actually, because a lot of churches, existing churches, will say, "Hey, we want change. We want to. We want to see gospel growth," um, and that really is their heart. Don't be suspicious. I really do believe that's their heart. Um, but it's are they willing to back it up? Um, and so by saying we're willing to spend our nest egg on your entire salary, because this is a church of fifteen, saying, "Hey, we've already got a point four pastor. We're going to bring on a." full-time pastor as well, so they paid me full-time from day one. Uh, to me, that was a, uh, a strong symbol of their support of actually making this happen. It also worked really hard to make it clear 
what my dreams and hopes were. And I did that by speaking to them myself, but also did it by getting the moderator to really reinforce. And I said, I want you to be sure that they know what we're getting in for. And he was confident that they'd got that message through a number of conversations. So, yeah, there was still a risk. 